This is the Lean Construction Blogs Podcast, a podcast dedicated to stories, case studies, and lessons learned of applying lean construction from around the world. Join Dick Beyer as he interviews industry leaders, lean construction practitioners, and subject matter experts to help you improve the build environment in general and your design and construction projects in particular, advance your lean journey, and bring your continuous improvement efforts to the next level. Let's get started. Hey, good morning, everybody. Welcome to the inaugural episode of the LeanConstructionBlog.com podcast. I'm Dick Beyer, and you can tell that's me because I'm the guy wearing the tuxedo for the inaugural episode. Most of you who tune in know me well enough to know that I'm going to be talking about things that happen in our community and stories of our projects, our people, and our communities. You know, last June, we lost our great storyteller, Greg Howell. I don't mean to take his place as the repository for all the stories, but I think the voices of our people have been missing in the community, and I think it's important to bring them back. So I hope to do this on this podcast. I'd like to start this off by telling lots of stories. And stories are, as our friends at um, Harvard Business Review tell us, are stories that actually connect people and then connect people with ideas. So that's our goal here is to connect you with the people that we have in our community and connect you with their ideas and the things that they think deeply about. The first series of podcasts are going to be about firsts. So uh, who is the first person in the lean community that I met? And who is the first person I worked on a lean uh, project for? And who are the people that were instrumental in, in convincing me that I should be the first executive director and first after first there's so many of them and so many of us in our in our journey have had aha moments caused by the people that we have met and there have been our first pull plans and our first phase plans and our first recognition that target value design is different than our ordinary sddd and cd series so i want to celebrate first and it's incumbent that um, i search out into my neighborhood of friends and acquaintances inside the community um, and bring you their stories. So it's completely appropriate today that we start off the LeanConstructionBlog.com podcast with LCI member number one. This was a guy who has been at the center of our community for so many years and was recognized last year with the LCI Pioneers Award. So without further ado, let me bring on my good friend, Dean Reed, and we'll talk to Dean about his 24 years on the road of continuous improvement. As I said in my little intro, Dean was LCI member number one, so I think it's completely appropriate that he appears on episode number one of the podcast. Dean has spent more time absorbing and living the lean culture than most of you have spent in your entire career. So educated in psychology at the University of Santa Cruz, the mighty banana slugs, by the way. So banana slugs. <laughs> Dean spent time, um, you know, in graduating in what, 69 or 70, yeah. something around there? Yeah. Um, <clears throat> spent time, like uh, most of us in that era, protesting the Vietnam War. But um, <clears throat> Dean and I share the fact that in the first lottery 
Uh, he was number 365. And in the second lottery, I was 365. Um, but that didn't mean that he was going to shirk his duty to his country. So he went off and served in the Peace Corps, which I think is awesome. Uh, came back, started working with his hands, and wood and metal and all those kinds of cool things and moved into the construction industry uh, with DPR back in the day. Um, like I said, he spent 24 years speaking and teaching and living and fine tuning his uh, approach to lean in construction. Um, he was the co-author of Integrating Project Delivery, which is the seminal work on all of the stuff that we're trying to do in terms of the contract model enabling a lean operating system, along with Martin Fisher and Howard Ashcraft and Atul Kanzori. Um, and <clears throat> appropriately enough, he was awarded the Pioneer Award from LCI last year, which is the highest honor that LCI hands out. So welcome, young man. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> Real pleasure and an honor to be here on podcast number one. Yeah, can you imagine what a launch, yeah. eh? <clears throat> yeah, yeah, it, it almost feels like we're a pod of whales, you know, <laughs> <clears throat> launching out there. <clears throat> and of course, my <clears throat> voice gives out, um, you know, podcast number one, so no problem. Um, so I, I wanted to chat with you, we had. I exchanged some uh, emails and we had a chat like last week uh, to talk about some of the things <clears throat> we could explore. And it seemed to me that we don't have to get into like lean 101. You know, it's most of the people that are going to be tuning in here, I think, um, already know about you and me and I kind of uh, where we've been in the in the lean world. And I think, um, like I said, you know, we lost Greg last year and we need to kind of reinvigorate storytelling in our community. And so I'd really like to focus on people and projects in our communities. And since you have been at the center of that, um, tell us a little bit about what kind of, uh, you know, when what was the day like when you got out of bed on the wrong side and ended up in the lane journey? <laughs> <laughs> I uh, That was a great day uh, when I made my way out to this restaurant and uh, the Sunset District of San Francisco to attend this meeting on lean construction. And I think uh, it was uh, Todd Zabel, maybe Glenn Ballard, uh, it wasn't Greg, uh, trying to explain this lean construction thing, uh, mostly about the last planner because that was the most concrete thing that they could talk about. And that really interested me because at that time I was working as a project planner, scheduler. And uh, I knew one thing, uh, that none of these plans ever worked the way we wanted them to. And I, I think it's really good. It, it, it's good to describe it as planning. I like to describe it as planning, too, because... I think scheduling is really for buses, right? <laughs> I mean, yeah, a bus has to show up at 7th and Bank Street at 7 o'clock in the morning, so I know it's going to be there. And I have not been on a, a project, whether as a lawyer for 30 years or doing construction industry work for 20 years. I've never been on a project where the schedule said work was going to happen in a place where it was ever actually happening. So that's a, it's it, it's interesting that you would have, have gone there. So um, after that meeting, you you went home and and told Carol, "I'm done with my life. I'm just going <laughs> to become an evangelist." <laughs> Sorry, Dick. 
<laughs> but uh, it wasn't that quick, huh? I no, I went home and uh, tried to make sense of what I'd heard. Dick, um, the whole attraction to lean construction, starting with that meeting, uh, was that it offered an explanation of what I was living, what was happening. And I'm sure you're aware of this. You've, you've counseled many people that once you're in the machine, <laughs> you're doing your part, uh, running your part of the treadmill, especially anything in, you know, design and construction jobs, you are totally immersed and you really can't see very far. You're just so overwhelmed if you're serious about your work with, with trying to, to do it the best you can dealing with all these unexpected things back to the, the, the planning versus scheduling analogy. So um, for me, uh, these people were offering a more more and more coherent explanation as I got into it. Um, So that was, that was enough for me. I, I, I was hooked pretty early and uh, I was also fortunate that I had uh, stumbled into virtual design and construction. I don't know which came first. Um, or that same, about that same time within months. Uh, and that was, that was very cool. Also, I spent a lot of time thinking about that and both of them together. So th- th- I'm a little bit of an oddball in, in that sense. Um, so, but uh, actually it, it took me, I mean, it, it took Greg Howell and Glenn Ballard have, had and have immense patience and uh, it took that to help me understand the last planner in lean construction but what's what's really interesting i think there's two things that you said that really resonated with me so the the first one is that when you're in the weeds you just don't have time to reinvent the system right because you have an output, you have a deliverable, you've got a place to go, you've got people to serve, and you just can't take time in a six-day-a-week, 12-hour-day work ethic to kind of put your head up and go, wow, is this the right stuff to do? <laughs> um, and the second thing I think is that Greg used to always say that the current system, <clears throat> bad as it may be, was at least coherent to people. They understood what they were supposed to do. They understood that they go and buy P6 and they get in a closet someplace with very little light and make linkages like sausages, you know, all the way through a project as if they were, you know, Zoltar the Great and they could make these predictions about things. And I think it's the same with estimation. I think if you had come up on the estimation side, you would have had the same, you know, kind of aha moment about, you know, none of this is really real as it turns out. Um, So I I think, you know, Glenn and and Greg obviously brought coherence to our community, but it's people like you that actually brought delivery into the community because you were working in the, you know, in in the, in the laboring, in the laboring field, you were, you were growing the rice and, uh, you know, making the bread. So, uh, and it, and it was, it was you and it was, you know, 
it was a number of other people that kind of came together in this confluence of things. But as you've seen the, the development of the system over time uh, and you look back on it as kind of a reflection, what do you what do you think about where we were when on that bright, beautiful morning, probably <laughs> probably foggy gray morning <laughs> when you left the the um, you know maritime mists of Santa Cruz and plowed into San Francisco, um, you know from that moment until today, what do you when you look back, what do you say? Wow, we made a lot of progress, or you know we're still doing a lot of stuff the same old way. Well, I think we have made a lot of product progress, uh, Dick, uh, and because of people like you, because really <laughs> smart people kept getting attracted. Uh, for various reasons, mostly what we've been talking about, this idea of coherence, finally, maybe uh, something uh, I can understand, make sense of this. Um, then the problem was, well, you find yourself living <laughs> in the reality, and then now you have this uh, alternate explanation, one that's not really a sanction that nobody else that you know really understands. Right. So we all start out that way, feeling sort of like we're the only one out in the in the boat. Um, and wow, uh, uh, it's getting rougher out here. <laughs> and and so, um, you know, as, as you well know, um, lean construction became a, a fraternity, uh, a sorority, a, a collection of people that shared this same feeling. And we would come together at the Congress and at the design forums. And, and you know, mostly those meetings were about connecting and keeping our our spirits up and and learning for sure yeah and um so that was what it's about and and now you know the lean construction institute has really carried that forward on a much much bigger scale we we had no idea of of that could the we could reach that many people honestly we were just trying to make our projects better and and just trying different things um within the company and trying to look for allies and i found plenty of allies uh once i could <laughs> begin to explain things in in uh, a way that people could understand which you know, takes some effort, some time. I think it's, you know, Dick Bayer's gifted in that a lot more than Dean Reed. And uh, that's because I have a tuxedo. That's really the only. <laughs> you have a tuxedo. The only difference. I get my only clean shirt on. <laughs> that's so, awesome. Thank you for doing that today. <laughs> so anyway, that that's that's was kind of my re recollection. I think, you know, Dick, when we. We all are sort of blind. We don't, none of us, no one ever has, not even Tai Chi Ono oh has had the ability to foresee the future. Right. So we just move forward into the fog. Uh, and um, of course, there's plenty of fog in San Francisco and my little <laughs> coastal town of Santa Cruz, but that's all we can do. And so I just, I think, I think anybody who does that deserves a real um, pat on the back and um, 
recognition for just doing that. And there are just plenty of people that I've worked with that, that have done that. Yeah, what's funny, I think, is that, you know, you're, you're talking about kind of how a culture began, you know, and it, it's um, um, Will Lichtig graduated from, I think he graduated from Santa Cruz, didn't he? Or did he graduate yes, from he, he is a he is undergraduate with a banana slug. Yeah, yeah. And, and he was an anthropologist. So it's interesting when you when you talk to anthropologists about culture and they talk about artifacts and they talk about language and they talk about <laughs> origin myths and all those things. I mean, we have the great, you know, we we certainly didn't, you know, create the world on the back of a turtle, but we did we do have our origin myths about, you know, the the first time those ideas came out in the small gatherings that came together. And, uh, you know, I remember fondly the uh, all the congresses we had in Boulder when what I really remember is that people would wear sweaters that smelled like wood fires, you know, <laughs> and, and they would wear Birkenstocks and, <laughs> and people would pass out from the altitude. I mean, it was pretty it was pretty cool. <clears throat> but nonetheless, it was really it was a time for storytelling when Owen and Greg sat down and told the story of the Orlando uh, water treatment plants or whatever those things were. It was just, it was really magical. And so uh, that's, what's really attracted me is that, is that we have the ability to create stories and we have a, the ability to create a culture where we have those things. And, and some people are more, you know, fluent in the language um, like Kaizen and, you know, Kata and all the rest of that stuff. But, we were talking the other day about um, how how really cool it is that this that this these were just a bunch of ordinary folks. I mean, it wasn't like you know somebody gave them a pedigree of some kind. I mean, they were educated PhDs, but it, it was it was a bunch of people just thought about wow, this just is not a very reliable thing to do every morning. How frustrating is it to get up and do 54% of what you thought you were going to do? I mean, yeah. think about that if you did that in your life, you know. I, yeah, I only had a fifty-four percent of a piece of toast for breakfast, and uh, it's just not very satisfying. So, how did you, you know, begin to get DPR? And to some extent, you know, everybody thinks that DPR means Dean uh, Philosopher Reed. That's what, that's what I thought, you know, early on. But how did you get yeah. them to move to the degree that they did move? Not that they've, you know, totally. No. In, in, not that any any of these companies have totally embraced it. No. No, it's um, if you are, uh, I have the utmost admiration for anybody running a large construction company or a design firm, really. Right. It's, it's an impossible job. And uh, back to DPR, uh, which does stand for Doug, Peter, and Ron. Oh, okay. um, Doug, Peter, and Ron, um, you know, formed this company I, they they left a a very a very very good company uh so they could ha have build their own and um so it was from day 1 it was always about sort of empowerment and um the expectation that everybody counts everybody makes a difference everybody has a voice they are thinking people. It really it was not a culture, you know, one of those top down cultures. So I was re I left a more much more established company, Dick, you know, where I was a planner scheduler. And I was still working for that company when I 
you know, stumbled into lean construction and, and, and VDC. It, it, very good company. But I left it because I was attracted to this culture. This I the, one of the core values was ever forward. Another one was uniqueness and enjoyment and integrity. And so I was I was hooked. Yeah. And yeah. so in so I there was just an expectation that we were all gonna go out and do the right thing. And 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 really try to make things better. So that was perfect. And so I just I always had an opportunity to do that. And and it's and there was really never there was never any way that Doug, Peter, and Ron were gonna say, lean construction, go do that. That that wasn't their style, you know. They they believed deeply in collaboration, partnering. So I really, um, I was in a place where I could talk, talk about and, and convince other people to try things. And, and, and they, they did. I, I found really great partners. What's, what's really interesting, I think, is that as I, as I look at some of the mantras that we have, right, the, the system is broken. If the system is broken, don't bother trying to fix it. Just invent a new system. You know, whether you're yeah, Fuller, you're, you know, Thomas Kuhn and paradigm shifts, you know, just get out there and do it. And yet it's really hard in the middle of delivering, you know, billions of dollars worth of work every year to decide that you're just going to go. And I, I, what I found, and I, I, I'm really interested in your comment on this. I found for, by and large, that the owners are the ones that have actually, um, the, the ones that who have embraced it, have been the ones that are trying to create a new culture because the old system was so dissatisfying for them. Yeah. But you look at the construction companies and even the design firms, and they don't necessarily think that the system is broken, right? <laughs> they're making lots of money. They're doing just fine. You know, uh, they're especially the bigger you get and the more little, you know, profit centers you have, um, you can make it in a very opaque system and transparency, you know, transparency doesn't do well with construction companies or mushrooms really. (laughs) You you don't want to expose them to the light of day. And it's, it's hard for them to open up about stuff because that's just not what their, what their mission has been. Right. So turning that ship is almost like that ship that was caught in the in the Suez Canal, you know, <laughs> that's a pretty good metaphor. Uh, yeah, it's tight and it's a big it's a big boat and it's carrying a lot of cargo. Right. And um, by and large, I, I think that that's true. It is very hard <laughs> to move a ship, especially in the Suez Canal with that uh, that much weight on it. Um, so. I'll tell you, uh, oh, I don't know how long ago it was, maybe in less than 10 years, really, uh, when everybody thought, well, this guy really does should understand this. I, I, uh, I read a book um, by, uh, by uh, Takahiro, well, edited by uh, two Japanese uh, uh, academics. They were interviews with um, P. 
people who had, uh, in fact, one interview had Taichi Ono and one of the Toyotas, Toyota family, Kirichi, I think. And the people who had worked alongside um, Ono. And these, so these were the people who were in the room, so to speak, who right. really were there. And it, it, the book is called The Birth of Lean. I highly recommend that book. It's, it's very readable. It's not some big fat tome. It's just these interviews. And um, to your point, Dick, I walked away completely um, with my, my head spinning <laughs> because the point was there was no grand design for the Toyota production system. Right. Literally, there wasn't even a... That's the secret. Is not there's designed. no secret. <laughs> no, it was not designed. In fact, they didn't even really sit down to describe it until 1970. That was... They'd been working on... I mean, you could trace the Toyota production system back even before they started building cars and trucks to the automatic loom and oh, all the stuff. But right. anyway, the point was that they were out there trying to build cars and trucks a little better every day because they didn't have a lot of money. There was no contract to protect them in the automobile industry. Right. Like we have contracts that really, that, sort of are designed to protect the the companies doing the work as that I mean at least from the their perspective. Right. So they don't go so they can stay in business. Uh, as you as you know, the profit margins are really slim. The invested capital is very small. That's why people and companies, you know, spring up um, and flourish for periods of time. But anyway, back to your point. Um, so it was Toyota was all about people just trying to make the work flow, trying to build better cars and trucks uh, uh, a little faster and um, for the least cost they could. And that's what it was. And and it was only after 20 years that they 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 needed to describe it because they were growing so fast. So they they had to sit down and think about what they had done. So and 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 that's always the consequence of systems thinking, right? Because systems happen whether you try to invent them or not. And so you can choose to be, you know, a hopeless victim of fate, as Will used to talk about all the time, mm -hmm. um, with that death mask from the, the plague <laughs> that he would always show. Or you can kind of try to understand what the system is. And I mm -hmm. think as, as Greg and Glenn and Lori Koskala and Iris Tomaline began to try to understand the system, they understood that all of the things that we had put together responded to contractual obligations and the sale of risk and the yeah. miniaturization of, of work down to, you know, one specialty after another. And all of a sudden they, they hit on the idea that that critical path method of taking everything into little things and that idea of hiring a whole bunch of little specialists to, to sell the risk to actually doesn't put together <laughs> Humpty Dumpty again. <laughs> no, 
Actually, you have to have a more holistic thinking about, you know, what is the system and what is the value that you're bringing to it? So, I mean, that's the thing I always loved about Lean. Uh, I spent the summer of 1968 in Japan as a foreign exchange student with the Lions Club. And one of the guys I lived with was a supplier to Toyota. So I was outside Nagoya. I was close to Toyota City. Um, and he supplied window cranks. And he hated Toyota. Mm-hmm. because Toyota every two years would say to him, Mr. Ichi, um, guess what? We pay you $1.79 right now for window cranks. In six months, we're going to pay you $1.63. And the sooner you get to $1.63, the more money you're going to make. And he thought, no, <laughs> the sooner I get to $1.63, I'm going to lose this beautiful house and I'm not going to have my bottle of Crown Royal to drink every night. Mm-hmm. So uh, I, I think it was in, in fits and starts. And I, I do appreciate that it's easier in some senses to describe the system than to invent it. Well, there, I think the point is there is no inventing, but back to Mr. Ichi, my guess is that Mr. Ichi did find a way to make the window crank for a dollar 63 and then took for a dollar 56. And, and he was, you know, he he didn't think he could, right? But he did. Well, yeah, so this is uh, this is what I call the uh, the absolute zero equation, you know, in our business. So you know, in IPD, so Brown University has been using Chomet on like eight IPD projects. So at some point, how far do you actually squeeze down um, your costs so you're really at absolute zero? And your profit margin as a percentage of the overall costs, obviously, is going down if you're kind of sticking with that same profit margin. So how do you get people to sit? And this is almost like owners have to reward, in addition to shared savings and shared profit, they have to reward those companies they have relationships with to encourage them to keep moving in that you know, transparent way and driving their costs down by learning from every project. Well, absolutely. Um, I mean, you, you got it. There has to be, I think the reason why owners have played such a big role um, and that it's absolutely true. One is they have a big vested interest. They, the smart owners realize they're paying for everything, right? That, that it's not possible to, to, to shed risk or shift risk or sell uh, especially it. big risk. Yeah. So the smart owners, Procter and Gamble, I mean Sutter Health, and you know they're everywhere now. Or right. many, many more of them. Okay, um, Brown University, they they figured that out, and um, and my guess is that if Brown University um, decided today that they needed more. Uh, you know, that they they weren't going to work exclusively with, I'm sure they don't ex- work exclusively with Shamit because these universities have huge uh, programs, not only construction, but renovation and all that stuff. So one contractor can't take care of all their needs. But so they, they said, well, we, should, we shouldn't be doing this. Let's go back to the old way. Their their whole program would fall apart because right. they, they they couldn't um, they've they reached a point now where they really can make 
predictions uh, with some degree of accuracy about uh, what it's going to cost to deliver their facilities. And they're get, they have gotten smarter working with this this team or this collection of um, of players, and so there's no going back because um, the out the results are just going to be very bad, and somebody's going to lose their job. Yeah, uh, and what you've said about reliability, I think, was at the heart of the last planner system, was really uh, you know. That at some point we get more and more sophisticated around productivity and and we are you know looking to shave 11 seconds off what it takes to hang a piece of drywall but in general the first thing we wanted to do was get the drywaller there for god's sakes yeah. <laughs> you know yeah. and improving reliability through transparency improving reliability through making work available by you know, not having work, waiting for workers and workers waiting for work. And, um, and the same thing with with costing. You know, how do we do, I think that's the new challenge. How do you do benchmarking when you don't have a design, you know? And, yeah. and you go to estimators and they say to the designer, give me drawings so I can do takeoffs. And people like me go, no, 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 no. Let's, let's, no. <laughs> let's look at all of our sets first. Let's not, you know, let's not collapse our sets just yeah. because you need a drawing for estimation, let's think about estimation differently. So it it's like around every corner. I was thinking about this about my daughter-in-law is uh, hitting you know a, a milestone birthday, and and I'm thinking about those milestone birthdays almost like Telescope Peak in Death Valley. I don't know if you've ever been up Telescope Peak, but it's really it's a cool climb. But there are a hundred false summits, <laughs> and you go over one, you go ah. No, <laughs> I'm not done. And it's tiring. You know, it's like, oh, how much of this evangelization do we actually have to do? And um, so so really what I, your observations have been, you know, have been spectacular. But if we think about this as a real reflection, you know, what are the things that we can say to our community? What are the things we should stop doing? We should just think, you know, this isn't yeah. working very well. Let's not do that. What are the things we should keep doing because they're working, you know, really well? And what are the things that we should kind of think about starting up? Because I think those are the, that's kind of the traditional, when we look back on reflecting, we say what's working, what's not, that's really where we want to go. So, yeah. so what do you think is working really well? Because I like the love part first before we get to loathe. <laughs> um, what do you think is working really well in, the, in our community that we should just keep doing? I think that we are... Um, great. I wouldn't, I, I don't know if we, I could use the word great, but we are very good, um, untrained, uh, problem solvers. Okay. Um, we do that day in, day out. We, so we have, we have no choice, Dick, as you know, <laughs> we can't stop that. That's fundamentally what we do. Well, as some people do it in design, others do it in construction. Yeah, as our mutual friend Bill Proctor, you know, he used to hand out CSRR's book called Problem Seeking, right? Mm -hmm. Because these problems just fall into your lap every single day. And the problems that are really worth solving, though, are the ones you have to go look for. Yes. Well, those are the ones, yes. 
Those are the important ones. Right. Uh, that, those problems are going to find you, but it's going to be too late. Eventually. So if yeah. you go looking for them, your chances of dealing with them are a lot better. So problem seeking is a great concept. So one, um, we are, we're good at, at problem seeking. We are actually good at working together. Once we sort of, at the level that things really happen, yeah. we're pretty good horse traders. And right. and we find ways to work together, even though it's, you know, outside, it's really outside the terms of going against the contract. So the way things actually get built is very much what we talk about in lean construction, honestly, day to day. Right at the at the shop so-called shop floor level so um and we're you know re highly regarded for that so we should keep doing that oh absolutely we have no choice but to do that. <laughs> that's true <laughs> so it's so, not like yeah. a volunteer uh, no, we're going to no. solve that problem well let's just you leave know, it over there and let it it's kind of back to hey we're going through the suez canal here we can't yeah we got to get this through the anybody think end. about the wind anybody <laughs> <laughs> so yeah so yeah we should plan uh for sure so but what we i think um could stop doing is um carving everything including ourselves up into pieces and and think that we can um, deliver projects as individual companies um, who uh, come together and only worry about our piece. That, you know that, I know that, and right. smart owners know it, it doesn't work. And, um, and smart contractors know it too. Right. Uh, so um, our best outcomes are when we work together. So the sooner um, we get to integrated project delivery contracts where we share the risk and reward. I've seen projects. I, I, I was involved with one where uh, we ended up sharing too much of the risk. And I, in the sense that things didn't go as well as we wanted them to go. Right. So uh, risk sharing risk and reward up and down. Um, so that we, I mean, that's the way you really get to be a team, Dick. I, I've seen this over and over yeah. again. Yeah. It's yeah. one thing to, to, to go to, you know, you've been to a thousand partnering meetings, right? right. You facilitated them and everybody, you know, comes together and it's the start of the project and we're going to work together and we, right. you know, all this stuff. First big blow up, everybody goes off to their corners and right. back to business as usual. And so um, one when the day you wake up uh, or, or you're the, the, <laughs> or your you know, project executive, uh, or right. the, everybody at that level wakes up and realizes, oh, my God, I am a partner with the electrician <laughs> for every dollar that the electrician loses. I'm actually losing the biggest part of that. Right. Uh, that is, you know, that opens the the door for working together. Well, like if, nothing else. If, if you think about, you know, when, when you talk about 
you know, we're keeping our part because we think we're maximizing maybe our return or whatever. It turns out that this is, even though we we talk about it in terms of money and we talk about it in terms of financial incentives, it's really about just getting money off the table, just getting people's interests aligned so that we understand that we don't put that Chevy station wagon in a corral to be fixed later. That's called a punch list. <laughs> you know, we pull the hand on cord immediately and we just fix it so that when the, at the handoff between the, the framer and the guy who's doing the roughing for the, the electrical, we fix it right there. So that we don't have this kind of corral of things. And yet people think that that's, that that costs them money when in fact, what we're trying to do is just take money and get it off the table. We isolate our profit. We put it over here. We don't worry about that anymore. We we worry about our interests are aligned because we're both we're both trying to solve the same problem in a way that helps all of us. Yeah. So yeah, I think that's a great thing. Is that you know stop breaking yeah. things into little pieces and thinking no. that we can put Humpty Dumpty yeah. back together again. No, you can't do it. Not we know that. So what should we? So. Uh, we're going to continue being great problem solvers. We're going to seek problems. Uh, we're going to stop uh, working in a fragmented. Everybody has, has to first protect themselves. Every project manager in that system, the current system, has to look out for his company or her company's interests first. Uh, so, in terms of what do we start doing? What can we do? Well, what can we do better? Um, in in all of these realms, you know, so many things like come to mind about we have initiatives and initiatives go away and we have this and that, but really fundamentally, what do we, what do we start? What do we tell ourselves when we get out of bed tomorrow? You know, I'm going to start doing that. Well, I'll say this, a couple of things at that level, Um, because this is not a place where you talk about the new system model. This is, this is exactly what happened. What am I going to do different when I get out of bed tomorrow? So I would say this, um, one, focus on information. You could, you, I, I think I can argue pretty well that, that most of our problems come from not having the right, accurate information when we need it. Right. it. It always comes. But sometimes it comes so late that we have we have spent a lot of money of the owner's money um, and essentially wasted it because the information wasn't there. So let's let's really focus on information more than the materials, more than the yeah. the, the the big you know the yellow machines that we love to watch and <laughs> drive and all this stuff. The glamour part, the the big trucks coming in with all the steel and all this stuff. Cool. We're I mean we're okay with that. Um, let's focus on the stuff we can't see, but let's actually make it possible so we can see it. Yeah. So so let's get even better at using BIM for one thing. But let's get let's all make sure everybody in the in the in the project office or everybody in every office has their own little personal whiteboard where they can track 
the progress. What did they expect to get done today? How much did they get done today? That's the right. kind of stuff that Toyota does. It's not glamorous at all. Yeah, and it's, it's so, not expensive technology. And if you, you know, want to yeah. give it a fancy, pretty straightforward, yeah, yeah name, you can you can talk about. Let's let, let's let's do it. Let's follow Toyota's lead. Let's get visual. Let's be visual. Let's yeah. visual. And even if you're just writing things down on your board, that's at least getting it out of your head onto into a form that other people can see. Oh wow, God! I realized those RFIs have, are 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 laid and. You know, you've been telling them, trying to tell them in those meetings that last for hours and hours. Right. Um, but it doesn't register. So let's be visual. Let's focus on information. Let's be visual. That's going to help a problem solving. That's what I think. That's the, I could talk and I'll go on and on. But just for starters, let's. Let's focus there. Well, and, and that's what I think, you know, what, what IPD does. I call IPD the bomb squad because what it does is it gets rid of the things that have tripped us up in the past. It doesn't tell us how to deliver projects, though. You have to invent that system, right? You have to inculcate that system, but it allows you to do it. And I think the focus on information is so important because risk, we forget that risk is just what we don't know. Yeah. And we are full of risk because we are making predictions about stuff that we could know. Mm -hmm. So when you talk about getting more information, seeing things as information, um, think how many times like uh, a, a worker will come on the job and we'll record a timesheet someplace and that timesheet will go somewhere. And then somebody will write down what that person has recorded for their time. And then that'll go into some other thing. And then it'll end up into an invoice. And then from the invoice, it'll go to somebody who's reviewing the invoices. And from there, it'll go to the owner and they'll enter it all. What if you know you walked onto a job with your iPhone and it recorded when you got there and it recorded when you left? Mm. And that automatically went into the overall invoice and the and the cost of the project. So we just knew it then. I mean, there's so much information we could know if we focus on thinking about every time we develop a data point, let's use it multiple times without having to recreate it. Absolutely. You know? And I think that's really at the heart of the what you're talking about about information yeah well i've taken be, so much be, of your time today my friend this has been <laughs> this has been terrific i'm sure we could go on for hours and hours we could but they told me we only have like 40 minutes so okay <laughs> i think we've got our 40 minutes i really appreciate you joining me today team it's been it's it's always great to see it but um you were the first guy i wanted and that's why i got dressed up <laughs> well i really appreciate that dick it's always fun to talk to you anytime Day cool. or night. Uh, uh, so uh, thanks a lot. I enjoyed it. it a lot of fun. We'll stay in touch. Okay, buddy. Thanks okay. so much. Bye-bye. Adios. Thank you for tuning in to the Lean Construction Blogs podcast. If you've enjoyed this episode, please help us spread the word by sharing, subscribing, or leaving a review on your preferred podcast listening platform. Remember to join us next time as we continue to lower the barriers to applying lean construction and help take your lean journey to the next level. And don't forget to visit the Lean Construction blog to stay up to date on our latest podcast episodes, weekly blog posts, monthly webinars, and upcoming conferences. We hope to see you on the next episode.